This is Guns and Butter. Iranians think that that cutting the oil flow is effective retaliation. That they somehow have to they have to realize that this is exactly what the U.S. would want. In other words, if there is an attack, one of the main goals of the attack uh, is, is it's obviously not just this this nuclear issue because there re, there really is no proof of any Iranian nuclear weapons program. It's going to be a question of regime change. But even more immediately, it's Get the price of oil up. Get it up to two hundred, five hundred, a thousand dollars a barrel, because that is what's going to save the dollar. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Webster Tarpley. Today's show: How the failed attack on the euro is setting the stage for a new Middle East war. Webster Tarpley is an economic historian, author, and lecturer. He is author of Against Oligarchy. Surviving the Cataclysm, a study of the world financial crisis, 9-11 Synthetic Terror, Made in the USA, and co-author of George Bush, The Unauthorized Biography. His latest books are Obama, The Postmodern Coup, The Making of a Manchurian Candidate, and Obama, The Unauthorized Biography. Today we discuss his most recent article, Obama is preparing to bomb Iran of July 21st, 2010. This article is 30 pages long and contains 70 footnotes. Webster Tarpley, welcome again. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. With regard to uh, a potential war against Iran, which, you know, on the face of it is just so insane, what is motivating this, or, or what, in your view, are the main motivations for all this war planning? One thing, which, which is making the, uh, the current situation much worse, it is the question of the world economic depression. Uh, it is the question of the survival of the dollar as the world reserve currency, because this meshes very closely with the, with the drive for war. The general rule is, when you have an imperialist ruling class of financiers, which is what we have, Wall Street Democrats, reactionary Republicans make up this imperialist ruling class dominated by financiers. When you have a general breakdown crisis and disintegration of those financial structures, and right now we're talking about this $1.5 quadrillion of kited toxic derivatives, the, the CDOs and credit default swaps that people have been hearing about in the, uh, the various hearings, if you've been paying attention, the derivatives that caused the banking crisis in, in 2008. When you get the insolvency and the massive uh, bank failures that we've had since 2007-2008, the net effect of that on an imperialist ruling class is to drive them berserk, to drive them bonkers, to drive them collectively uh, off the edge, insane. Uh, And they're susceptible then to the most uh, unbelievable flights forward into adventurism and aggression. And the classic example, of course, is Germany between the 20s and the 30s. Right, You get a a ruling elite that that, uh, doesn't see a way out, and they turn to the solution of national socialism and, and Hitler, and then uh, aggression in essentially in, in all directions. And in that pattern, right, you see depression, dictatorship, and then war. And I'm afraid we're we're pretty much in that again. We're we're in depression, 
and the elements of dictatorship are, are building up clearly enough, and, and I think then war would, would tend to, uh, to await us. And specifically this, when you had the derivatives crisis destroying the U.S. and British banking systems, and, and then the, the inevitable bailout, the $24 trillion credit line from the Fed, the Treasury, and the FDIC, for the U.S. banks in particular, um, the answer to that, of course, was to flood the world with with all these dollars. Right, that's the 24 trillion that they uh, that they put at the disposal of Wall Street. So a lot of dollars were sloshing around pretty fast. And what we then saw in the second half of 2009, or even by the time you got to um, the summer of 2009, the dollar began this sickening slide against the euro. And everybody in the world was saying, "Well, how long can the dollar hold on? How long will?" Uh, oil be priced in dollars? How long will Saudi Arabia be accepting dollars for oil? How long will dollars be used through the euro dollar market to finance international trade? And there was a real, uh, you know, hue and cry about countries dumping the dollar, choosing the euro, going with the yen, trying to make it on gold and so forth. And the answer to that was that the U.S. and the British, working through these same hedge funds, and with the help of our friend Soros and Soros Fund Management and uh, and David Einhorn of Greenlight Capital and SAC and, uh, oh, uh, you know, Brigade Capital. In other words, it's the group of short sellers who helped to destroy Lehman Brothers. Certainly Lehman Brothers was bankrupt, but the way it was finally brought down had a lot to do with these shorts. Um, so these people essentially focused on the euro, and they said, well, we can't really attack the euro directly because it's too big, but what we can do is to attack the government bonds of countries like Greece and Portugal and Spain, which are relatively smaller markets where an attack by speculators, by a, a wolf pack of hedge funds, using credit default swaps to maximize leverage and to get a real stampede going, we can we can attack the the euro through that. And I think... In uh, in retrospect, this was designed to be a blitzkrieg. In other words, a lightning war. It was supposed to destroy the euro uh, in the first half of this year. By about May-June, it seems to me, the, the prognosis, uh, and you could hear it on, on CNBC, right? They were saying, uh, we want parity. We want the, the euro to go down to be equal to the dollar. And then, of course, beyond, right? I think they wanted the euro to, to lose half of its value or, or something like this. What they were planning was uh, panic flight out of the euro. In other words, hot money, flight capital, rushing out of the euro into the yen, into the dollar, into gold, or whatever it was, to collapse the euro. In other words, to completely destroy the euro as an alternative to the dollar. And uh, this has failed. That's the big, the big news of uh, the past couple of months, I think, is that the Anglo-American blitzkrieg against the, uh, the euro has failed. The euro is going back up, isn't the euro is, it? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. The, the euro was down to 119 in the beginning of May, and now it's up to 131. So it's not working. And the problem with that is, as the Germans found before Stalingrad, is when your blitzkrieg bogs down, that leaves you in a very exposed position, doesn't it? Uh, and I think that's where the Anglo-Americans are today. Uh, so what you get out of that is uh, the, the attack on the euro, and this is based on the Wall Street Journal of, um, of yesterday. The Wall Street Journal of, of, uh, of uh, August 5th says that the the maximum short interest in the euro, in other words, the maximum number of short contracts 
attacking the euro was reached on May 11th. And that's five days after the flash crash. The flash crash was the loss of 1,000 points on the Dow within about 15 minutes uh, in the middle of the afternoon on May 6th. And if you look at that, if you look at that Wall Street Journal article, you'll see that the euro, during those same minutes, the euro lost about 10 or 12 cents within about 10 minutes. That's huge. I mean, for a currency, you can think what that means. The, the turnover of the euro is easily a trillion dollars a day. It's huge. To lose 10 or 12 cents uh, within you know, as many minutes is just unbelievable. So I think there's, there's some unspoken connection between the flash crash of May 6th and the fact that the short attack on the euro peaked just five days later. But anyway, this, this is not the main point. The main point is that the Blitzkrieg has failed. Now, where does that leave us? Well, you're bogged down in front of Stalingrad to some, to some degree. You're in a very exposed position. The forces of depression in the world economy remain what they were. $1.5 quadrillion of toxic chitid derivatives. 1,500 trillion of toxic chitid derivatives. And these are focused primarily in London and New York. So if, if the uh, plan of feasting on the flesh of the euro is not uh, going to succeed, then where will the depression make itself felt? In other words, who's going to go bankrupt? Who's going to be beggared in the beggar my neighbor scenario this time around? Who's going to take their turn in the barrel? It's either going to be the pound or the dollar, and ultimately it doesn't matter which one, because if it's the pound, if it's London, remember if the British banks go down with the pound, they will drag with them the entire euro-dollar market, which is trillions of U.S. dollars that have been in London for the past, what, 50 years or so. They've been you know, operating abroad for various kinds of financing. So if London goes, the dollar goes, New York goes. And if it vice versa, if, if New York goes, then London is, is, is sure to be also pulled into the, uh, into the maelstrom. Now, if you want to stop that and your attack on the euro has failed, what can you do? Well... They've done it before. 1973, uh, the Bretton Woods system had collapsed in, uh, in August uh, of 1971. It had been destroyed by Nixon and Kissinger, uh, which was an act of incalculable historical folly. But it essentially left the dollar more or less as the world reserve currency in a kind of a ruined post-Bretton Woods system. Uh, by, by 1973, there, there were so many dollars, again, sloshing around the world that there was the idea that there would be another dollar crisis and that the, the residual role of the dollar as world reserve currency could easily be ended. Maybe it would be the DMARC and the yen or, or something else. So meeting of the Bilderberger Group in Salzjobad in Sweden in the summer of, of 1973, discussing what would be the effects of a 400% increase in the price of oil. That was the title of a presentation by, I think, the U.S. State Department representative to the Bilderbergers. And, uh, well, that's then what happened. That was the Kippur War of October 1973, right, staged by Kissinger. But also it was the, uh, the fact that uh, under the, the effect of the war that we had the Arab oil boycott, which was largely a paper boycott. It didn't really stop the flow of oil. Oil seemed to be flowing, if anything, even more abundantly than usual, right? The tankers were circling off Bayonne, New Jersey, because they couldn't unload the stuff fast enough. But that did allow the speculators to bid up the price 
400% under the cover of this boycott, which was a complete fake. So that saved the dollar, uh, maybe for a decade, maybe, maybe more. So if you wanted to do that today, what would you do? And here's where the, the Iran story comes in. If you attack Iran, if Israel attacks Iran, if the U.S. attacks Iran, it doesn't matter. One of the basic Iranian retaliations will be to try to interdict the tanker traffic there in the Gulf, the Persian Gulf or Arabian Gulf, as you want to see it, and to close the Straits of Hormuz. We just had a dress rehearsal for that uh, with this, uh, this shadowy group attacking the uh, Japanese oil tanker with a, with a boatload of explosives. Uh, but here's the thing. Uh, if, if the Iranians imagine that that's an act of effective retaliation, I think they're going to find that they're wrong. And as a matter of fact, it's built in to the Anglo-American scenario. In other words, the Anglo-Americans would welcome the cutting of that tanker traffic. And it doesn't take much, right? You can, you can make it impossible to send the tankers if you can just get the hysteria to the level where the uh, Lloyds of London insurance rates go so high that it's not profitable anymore. You can stop it, right? You don't have to literally physically block uh, the, the, the tanker traffic. Uh, and this we saw in the so-called tanker war right back in the, in the 1980s. If you, if you close Hormuz and interfere with this traffic, the price of oil goes up to $200, $300, $500 a barrel. That would be a godsend for the dollar because that would generate so much demand for dollars that the dollar would be saved. In other words, the, the, the problem of the collapse of the dollar, which is otherwise on the agenda for the rest of this year, uh, would, would simply it would vanish, at least for the moment. And, of course, who would get uh, hit by this, right? China would be massively hit, right? If China can't get oil from the Gulf, they're in big trouble. Same thing for Japan. Same thing for India. Same thing for Europe, right? The U.S., of course, would also suffer. But the calculation of people in Wall Street is they don't care about industry. They don't care about driving cars. They care about financial aggregates. They care about the price of derivatives, the price of a dollar, the U.S. Treasury market, and so forth. Paper wealth is what means wealth to them, right? The ability of the commuter to get around or the standard of living of an American family, they don't care about this. They're, they're full of contempt for that. That doesn't exist uh, for them. So uh, I would point to a, a French author, Jean-Michel Vernochet, V-E-R-N-O-C-H-E-T, whom I quote in my article. He writes for Réseau Voltaire, the Thierry Maison group in, uh, in Paris and, and around the world. And uh, there are some very good uh, analysts who write there, and in particular, Vernochet points precisely to this, that if the Iranians think that, that cutting the oil flow is effective retaliation, that they somehow have to, they have to realize that this is exactly what the U.S. would want. In other words, if there is an attack, one of the main goals of the attack uh, is, is it's obviously not just this, this nuclear issue, because there, re- there really is no proof of any Iranian nuclear weapons program. It's going to be a question of regime change, but even more immediately, it's get the price of oil up, get it up to $200, $500, a barrel, because that is what's going to save the dollar. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, how the failed attack on the euro is setting the stage for a new Middle East war. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, now explain how that saves the dollar. 
demand for dollars. In other words, if, if there are too many dollars sloshing around the world, if the Federal Reserve has put out trillions and trillions of dollars of 0% lending, if you've got a dollar carry trade now where any bank in Wall Street can go to the Fed, borrow for 0%, and send that to Japan or Hungary or uh, whatever the hottest of the hot uh, emerging market stock exchanges or some other scam or some derivatives bet across the world is you flood the world with dollars, well, supply and demand, right? If the world is flooded with dollars, then dollars are going to go down in value. The only thing holding the dollar up over the last uh, eight months, 10 months or so, has been this attack on the euro. It's not that the dollar looked good. It's that the euro looked so bad that the dollar looked good by comparison. It was an invidious strategy. The yen has been strong all along. Uh, But now if the euro is now going up again, uh, what's going to happen to all these people? Plus, they, they've also got losses now, because if they shorted the euro and they got burned, they're going to have to cover, and that creates even more pressure on the, uh, on, on the dollar. So if in that situation, just like 1973, just like 1979, because it was the same thing again, 1979 was a 200% increase uh, to celebrate the fact that Khomeini had taken power in, in Iran. That was the cover story that time. This time it may be a real shooting war, at least, in the, uh, in the Gulf. If the price of oil goes to 500, then it's like a vacuum cleaner sucking up all the dollars in the world because people are going to need them to buy their oil and gas. Well, why don't they buy the oil in their own currency? They can't because that's the whole, the whole point of imperialism is that the posted price is in dollars. That's the whole issue of reserve currency. And the, uh, the, the Saudis, according to most of these reports, who uh, sort of set the tone for this part of the world market, they are demanding that the U.S. attack Iran. We've even had the case of the United Arab Emirates guy, and they're, they're a power in oil themselves. The United Arab Emirates ambassador to the United States, speaking in Aspen, Colorado, back in the middle of uh, June, demanded an immediate U.S. attack on Iran. He was then recalled. But this was, I believe, what these degenerate elites in the uh, Emirates, right, these feudal relics of Saudi Arabia and the Gulf, these reactionary uh, you know, creatures out of a museum. This, this is what they want. They, they uh, hate and fear Iran for all these reasons, right? Arabs and Sunnis don't get along with Persians and Shiites, uh, but now it's much more. And, and according to most of the published reports, the outburst of this uh, United Arab Emirates uh, diplomat uh, in, in Aspen is, is a pretty faithful mirror of the opinions there in, uh, in uh in the Gulf, right? In 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 the uh, in Riyadh and then in the in the Gulf states. Well, what about moves to uh, remove the dollar as the world reserve currency? What about yes, that? Those were stoked by the weakness of the dollar, which the, the turning point for the dollar was December of last year, and that was when you had the Dubai crisis break out. That was the first sovereign debt crisis uh, in the current phase was people said, oh, my God, Dubai is bankrupt, and will Abu Dhabi bail them out, and, and all the rest of this. And very quickly after that, it moved on to Greece and to Portugal and to Spain. But now the, the Europeans have mounted a, a counterattack. I think the most important European counterattack was the German government saying that naked credit default swaps against euro land, euro-denominated bonds are illegal. They were simply banned the 20th of May, approximately. 
and naked short selling of German stocks are banned uh, within Germany. But that's already a signal. It's also a signal that they would they would fight harder if they continued to come under attack. Another big thing which uh, needs to be played up is that the Chinese government apparently made a strategic decision to support the euro, that they wouldn't let the euro go down, they would not allow the dollar to reassert hegemony through this hedge fund attack, and therefore they moved in and uh, did support operations for the euro and actually used that to buy um, pieces of Europe. They apparently bought a pretty big piece of Greece when the prices were very low. So you're going to find a big Chinese influence in Greece from now on as a result of this uh, crisis. Uh, and then, of course, the Europeans did assemble this trillion-dollar trillion uh, bailout fund, which was available uh, to uh, to counterattack the uh, the speculators. So uh, the main point is that whatever whatever the reasons, and I think these are the main ones, the the speculative attack has broken down. The attempt to shift the crisis onto the euro has failed, and therefore the crisis will come back to the dollar. The only thing I see uh, to stave that off and to prevent the depression from coming home to London and especially New York is is the, the idea of uh, raising the price of oil. And again, this is something that's been done in 73 and in 79. This is part of their kind of Pavlovian response, right? It's their uh, conditioned reflex to this current situation. But now, are you saying that this business about raising the price of oil to save the dollar only works if the dollar is the world reserve currency? Well, these go together. In other words, uh, the, the the way you get to be the world reserve currency is if that is the way you buy oil in the Gulf. In other words, what's the posted price in Saudi Arabia is the big question. Uh, you can you can see uh, it, it, there was a time after World War II for about 15 years, Saudi Arabia also accepted British pounds for oil. And about 1960, they said, all right, no more pounds, only dollars. That was the moment when the pound died as the world reserve currency in any form. And that would be the same for the dollar. And again, if you're the Saudi Arabian Monetary Authority and you're sitting on a huge mass of a, of a trillion dollars or whatever they have, if that's going down, 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 then you're losing more, more, more. But if it's going up, and uh, that's what would happen, uh, then you can... Uh, then you can uh, hold on to it. Do you see what I mean? You've got to convince the Saudi Arabian Monetary Authority that they need to hold dollars and not something else. Now, they were, they were flirting with the euro, and then there was about eight months where the euro was looking pretty bad, but now that has changed again. Do you see what I mean? The fields of world history have reversed in May, June, July in terms of the currency war. Well, yes, of course, but what you're saying then is that as long as the U.S. controls Saudi Arabia then Saudi Arabia is going to price its oil in dollars, right? Well, no, I, I, I think this is now very, very dicey. In other words, I don't think there's any uh, assumption that anybody can control anything. We had about a year ago a report that Prince Bandar, and that's Bandar Bush, that's a member of the royal family. He'd been the ambassador to the U.S. for a long time, was considered a total U.S. puppet. The report was that he had... Uh, essentially gone over to Putin, and that he was attempting to uh, to play the Russian card and to balance the U.S. presence. And that, 
apparently failed, right? He was supposedly put under house arrest, and I haven't been able to find much about him ever since. But this is all touch and go. Nothing is a given. Uh, if you want, if you expect the Saudi Arabians to keep accepting dollars, you cannot have that as a wasting asset. It's got to be an asset of stability and, if possible, of growth. How can you do that? Well, one way, an insane way, a lunatic way, a flight-forward way, is to start a war in the Gulf, and at that point uh, there'll be, there'll be um, plenty of uh, demand for dollars. So if there's not enough demand for dollars in the world, you increase it artificially. With a war and a quadrupling or a, a, you know, a, a, a ten times increase in the price of oil, then there's plenty of demand for dollars. Well, if the euro is strengthening vis-a-vis the dollar, and the Arabs are then uh, tempted to start pricing their oil in euros... You, that's why you've got to do this before this all happens, and that means that's one of the reasons of the urgency. Oh, I see. So you're Now, remember, you've also got to realize there are no markets. We're dealing here with cartels, oligopolies, monopolies, duopolies. Uh, uh, there's no such thing as a market. Uh, there's only these contending forces. So if the, if the hedge fund attack breaks down, then your only fallback option is the shooting war, and then you do a speculative run-up in the price of oil under the cover of the shooting. And at that point, the Japanese will need dollars. They're going to have to start buying dollars to pay for their oil. The Chinese will need more dollars. Everybody in the world is going to be buying dollars like mad. And at that point, the dollar will be stabilized for at least some time. Now, the effects of this on the world are obviously devastating, right? In terms of production, food, we're going to have a, we've already got something of a wheat crisis, right? The price of wheat has gone up by 10% or so just in the last week because of the, uh, the drought in Russia and, uh, and indeed the embargo of wheat exports by the, the Russian government. So um, there are all sorts of things going on in the world economy that are, that are very, very uh, disturbing and threatening. But uh, again, the one thing that, that uh, the Anglo-Americans think they can do based on their track record of 73 and 79 is start a war, cut off the oil, cash in, uh, cash in in the sense that everybody will be paying in dollars. So... Uh... In spite of the fact that an attack on Iran seems like such an ins- just insane idea, you're saying that on this level, anyway, on the level of the dollar, it makes some sort of sense. I think it's one, it's one of the main things. In other words, it, the general idea is when you have a banking panic, a breakdown crisis, and the entire London and New York banking communities are wiped out, which is what has happened in 2008, and then they're brought back to life on the formaldehyde of a, of a bailout. That is when a ruling class goes collectively insane. War psychosis, flight forward, adventurism uh, begin to creep in, and I think this is where we are. Now, a couple of other things. One is, uh, back in, in 2002, 2003, when we had the run-up to the war in Iraq, we had, for example, the Chancellor of Germany, Gerhard Schroeder, who ran for office saying, this country under my leadership will not be available for joining adventures in the Middle East. In other words, we're not going to be a part of your war. Jacques Chirac and his foreign minister, Dominique de Villepin, said to Bush essentially, no, we're not going. Um, unfortunately, now we have uh, Merkel, a much weaker leader. Uh, the guy doing things in, in Berlin is uh, Schäuble, the finance minister. He's the one who fought back against credit default swaps. 
Uh, and in uh, Paris, you've got, uh, well, Sarkozy, who for all intents and purposes is a CIA scion. He's, uh, if not an agent, he's somebody who grew up in the CIA cultural milieu in the sense that, that his, uh, his stepmother uh, married the Wisner family of the CIA. So that's his um, niche in life. Uh, he is now under attack with scandals. Uh, I think it's interesting that the French system works in the sense that if somebody is obviously uh, an alien influence, that uh, they come under scandal attack, right? This is the Betancourt, L'Oréal party financing scandal, dirty money to, his, his, uh, to Sarkozy's party from this uh, L'Oréal cosmetic company. So he's under attack, but there's nobody there in Europe fighting uh, against uh, an attack on Iran. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, how the failed attack on the euro is setting the stage for a new Middle East war. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Another one is the Russian situation. As long as you had uh, Putin uh, calling the shots in Russia, you had a very effective um, statesman with a very stern attitude towards these uh, aggressive uh, adventures. And um, he, I think, uh, was always a big question mark for the Anglo-Americans. In other words, they, they knew, for example, that if they attacked Iran in 2006-2007, it was very unlikely that, that Russia would enter a war over that. But uh, Russia would respond in some way, and that some way could become very uncomfortable for the Anglo-Americans. We also have to remember that when it came to Operation Bite, the uh, planned U.S. attack on Iran on Good Friday in April of uh, 2007, it was the Russian Ria Novosti that essentially uh, put out the story on that. We had General Ivashov also writing about those things. We should probably remember that, that at the close of the, of the very dangerous phase, in October of 2007, Putin of Russia visited Tehran, visited Ahmadinejad, for the first uh, time since Stalin had gone there in the uh, Tehran conference during uh, World War II. And that visit, Putin's visit with Ahmadinejad, I think, was another thing that closed the books on the Bush-Cheney neocon aggressive plan against Iran in, in 2007. Now, unfortunately, you have this dual power situation where you have Putin, I think, uh, retaining all the clarity that he had and the stern nationalism that, that uh, animated him. But uh, you have now with Medvedev a much less uh, clear figure, someone who is, I think, profoundly tempted by, um, what can we say, compromises and concessions to the United States. I see Medvedev making concessions to the United States, which are essentially unrequited. He's not getting much in return. He's getting a tour of Silicon Valley with the idea that somehow these IT technologies can be made available for Russian modernization. I think Russian modernization will take much, much more. It'll take infrastructure, communications, uh, a whole lot of tangible physical commodities, and simply computers alone will will not do it. But this, this is the line uh, which is now being advocated by Anatoly Chubayas, who you recall is the main 
architect of the nomenclatura privatization of the Soviet state property back in the 1990s. In other words, that the the party managers of factories become the owners of factories, and the Russian people get shafted. That was Chubayas, and uh, the damage he did to the Russian economy was was incalculable. Uh, He's now back uh, and and, uh, trying to influence uh, Medvedev. So you no longer have um, this Russian role in the way that you did. And when it comes to the Chinese, I think they they um, um, made a big mistake in voting for the, the most recent round of U.S. Uh, sanctions against Iran. The way that that happened was that Hillary Clinton blackmailed them. Hillary Clinton said, look, you, don't, you Chinese don't want to lose your ties to Iran. So what we'll uh, have to remind you of is if you don't vote for the sanctions against Iran. Israel will attack Iran. Iran will close the Straits of Hormuz. And then you uh, Chinese will lose not only the Iranian oil, but the Saudi oil, which is more. So therefore, you better you know, be willing to lose the Iranian oil. And uh, with that, you can keep the Saudi oil and the UAE oil. But otherwise, if, if Israel attacks Iran, nothing will come out of Hormuz. So they're, they're playing the other side of the same issue that we just went through, but trying to scare the Chinese with it. And apparently she succeeded because the Chinese then voted for these sanctions. Let me also stress, though, that for the, for the Chinese and the Russians, they insisted on wording in that fourth resolution that went through in June, which makes clear that the, the new round of economic sanctions does not lead to military action and indeed is the opposite of military action, so that uh, there's no basis for somebody like Obama saying, well, we have the world with us because they're all angry with Iran. Uh, They're not uh, advocating military action. Well, are you sure that... uh, Now, how do you know that Hillary Clinton uh, uh, threatened uh, China with all of that? This was clear enough. This was was public statements at the time. And indeed, I did a commentary on Russia today about this. Oh, I see. Now, so are you saying... A couple of things. Are you then saying that... There is less world opposition to uh, U.S. military yes. aggression in the Middle East than there used right. to be. You don't have a you don't have a German government saying no. You don't have a French government saying no. And above all, you don't have Putin, who uh, profoundly frightened the neocons because uh, they didn't know what he would do. Okay, I see what you're saying there. And could you explain what you've mentioned? Operation Bite. What was that? Operation Bite? That was the planned U.S. attack on Iran for Good Friday morning, uh, 2007. I think it was in early April. You can check the date. And that then led to a huge you know, world outpouring of uh, you know, independent bloggers and websites and, and things like this and, and radio and uh, probably even some television, uh, and, and it didn't happen. I see, but there was an actual plan called Operation. There was, and, and again, oh. 2006, 2007 in general were periods of intense, real, and present danger of a U.S. attack on Iran. After about December of 2007, all during 08 and 09, and into 2010, uh, the danger I think was very, very limited, and in particular because. The International Crisis Group of Soros and Brzezinski, and uh, that's, by the way, that's Samantha Power. Um, Cass Sunstein's wife 
is Samantha Power. You remember her from the campaign. She had to quit after a, uh, an obscene outburst against Mrs. Clinton uh, in a Scottish newspaper. She's from the International Crisis Group, and so are some of the others. That is, the International Crisis Group is money from Soros, ideas from Brzezinski, primarily. And they were promising the overthrow of the Iranian government through color revolution means. Brzezinski said, I did it in Ukraine in 2004. I can do it again in Iran. Well, he hasn't been, uh, been able to do it. Now, let me just point to a couple of reasons why this is so serious, because I think we have to conclude. Um, the problem now is nuclear escalation, what Fidel Castro is, is talking about. Uh, and I would, I would see it in these terms. There's a danger of U.S. Nuclear escalation, Israeli nuclear escalation, and anything involving Pakistan also brings nuclear into play because Pakistan has nuclear weapons and they can defend themselves. In which countries in the Middle East uh, does the United States have military installations? Let's look at the, uh, at the U.S. case. Uh, how could the U.S. go nuclear? Well, uh, the U.S. has troops in 11 countries all around Iran. Uh, and they're the, some of them are obvious, right? Some of them, well, you have Iraq, you have uh, Afghanistan, but then you have uh, some others, right? You have Turkey, which is a NATO ally. Uh, so you've got the Inchilic Air Base. But rather than go through them in detail, let's just tick them off. U.S. has forces in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Turkey, Pakistan. They're there. Kuwait, Azerbaijan. Armenia, Turkmenistan, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Kyrgyzstan. Uh, Hillary Clinton has just been to Azerbaijan, um, and there's a U.S. presence there. The U.S. is also in Armenia, as I said. Now, that's designed to put a ring around Iran. On the other hand, so much fragmentation, so much dispersal of forces can also lead to weakness. What if uh, the 50,000 or so U.S. forces in Iraq at some point are surrounded, if their supplies are cut off, if they have no communications? Well, I talked to a, a Navy captain from the nuclear submarine fleet that served under Hyman Rickover directly, and late in his career he was part of a drill, and the hypothesis of the drill was 35,000 U.S. forces are cut off and surrounded in Iran or near Iran. What do we do? And the answer was nuclear weapons. The basic rule is when you're defeated conventionally, if you have nuclear weapons, you're tempted almost inevitably to go nuclear to save the day on the conventional level. Now, how about the Israelis? For them, I think it's even, it's even clearer, though maybe a little bit more complicated to explain. You've got to remember that four years ago, in the Israeli attack on Lebanon, on Hezbollah in southern Lebanon, the Israelis were defeated. They were defeated uh, very, very soundly. Their Merkava tank was uh, essentially not only destroyed, but discredited. They lost the equivalent, really, of one whole armored division out of the seven that I believe they started with. Um, and generally speaking, the whole Israeli model of warfare was thrown into, into crisis. Now, in the meantime, um, Hezbollah in southern Lebanon can be thought of as a, as a long arm of Iran in these military terms, inevitably. Um, and what uh, Hezbollah has acquired now are missiles that go far beyond those small Soviet-manufactured Katyushkas, those sort of World War II rockets, uh, of which they fired some 4,000 during the, um, the war in July, August of, 
of 2006. Uh, those are simply terror weapons. In other words, you point them in the general direction of Haifa or some other Israeli city, and they may hit something or they may not. And if they do, they can do damage, but they're also not very large. Um, but now the uh, Hezbollah has acquired a missile called the M600. It's an Iranian missile, fundamentally. It's known by the Iranians as the Fatah 110 and the M600. Now, this is a 300-kilometer missile with uh, about a 1,000-pound conventional warhead, and it has a guidance system, so you can actually point it at targets. Uh, it means that all of the Israeli Air Force bases in northern Israel can now be hit with relatively accurate fire from these Hezbollah missile batteries. Um, and, of course, they still do have the 40,000 of the smaller rockets that are still there. They also apparently have some scuds. Uh, scuds are not a good thing because it takes so long to get them ready with the liquid fuel, uh, whereas the M600 is solid fuel. You can fire it in about a minute, even if the Israeli Air Force is watching you. You can probably, uh, you can probably launch it. The other thing is the Israeli uh, air superiority is now made uh, less um, certain by the fact that Hezbollah has acquired a whole array of Soviet or Russian-manufactured uh, surface-to-air missiles. The Grail, the Gremlin, and the Grouse, these are sort of the um, stinger equivalents. They're sort of shoulder-held missiles that can be fired by one or two people at a helicopter or an airplane. And Hezbollah also seems to have the SA-8 Gecko which is essentially a small tank with uh, its own uh, radar system, uh, two radar systems, and about four surface-to-air missiles. Now, in this case, it's a 10-mile range and a 40,000-foot ceiling, which is quite significant, uh, and that's a real threat to the Israeli Air Force. Now, if we add in the fact that the Iranians have been developing their own array of uh, conventional missiles. I'll just go through it. We have the Fajr-3, which has three uh, independent reentry vehicles. So it's MIRV. It can essentially launch three warheads. We have the Shahab-3, which is based on the Scud. The Shahab-3C has a range of uh, 3,000 kilometers. The normal Shahab-3 has a 2,000-kilometer uh, range. We have the Ghadr-110, with a range of 1,800 kilometers. We have the Ashura, which is a two-stage solid-fuel rocket. We have the Sajil, 2,000-kilometer range, two-stage solid-fuel rocket. Now, uh, an author that I found writing for Asia Times suggests that if you had a coordinated attack with the M600s coming from southern Lebanon, from the Hezbollah, and these uh, various um, uh, short-range and medium-range ballistic missiles coming from Iran, you might be able to overwhelm the Israeli missile defense system. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, how the failed attack on the euro is setting the stage for a new Middle East war. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What about uh, Israeli uh, missile defense? The Israeli missile defense system has four layers. At the lowest level, it's called Iron Dome. Then it's called David's Sting. Then we have the Arrow, 
and we may soon have the Arrow 2, and then you have the U.S. Patriot Complex. And with this, the Israelis are trying to avoid getting hit with so many rockets. Uh, but the question is, what what is the capability of that, and what would it take to overwhelm it? The big danger is, uh, for the Israelis, is that if you have the Hezbollah coordinating with Iran, and you have missile salvos coming in, can that combination successfully attacked the airfields of the Israeli Air Force. Because if those can be hit, then the Israeli position becomes critical and untenable. At that point, what do they do? Well, it turns out that they have three nuclear ballistic missile firing submarines, uh, and they're trying to keep those in, uh, at least one of them, in the Persian Gulf at all times. Uh, Meaning that they're thinking about... uh, well, some kind of a strike against uh, Iran using these nuclear missiles, uh, which uh, I think you can see the, the, the general pattern is the same. If you're defeated in the conventional area, in other words, if it's just the normal conventional aircraft and so forth, and if those are getting hit with missiles, then you've got to have recourse to something. And if you've got it, you've got these nuclear ballistic missile submarines, and that would then be a path towards a general conflagration. The other thing people say is that the Israelis can't use nuclear weapons against, say, southern Lebanon because it's so close, uh, and then all the radioactive debris comes down basically in Israel. That would be true, uh, except we've also got reports that the Israelis have a neutron bomb, which would simply have the effect of killing all the people, and much less uh, radioactive debris would be would be generated. So, uh, But what you're looking at are various paths to nuclear escalation. And of course, again, with Pakistan, anytime you're dealing with Pakistan, it's unstable and they have nuclear weapons. So if the U.S. overdoes it, or if the U.S. succeeds in playing them against Iran, those Pakistani nukes could then be used against Iran in in that scenario. So I think this is the most uh, dangerous that we've ever seen it. And as um, the author there in uh, Asia Times who assembled this this picture, a guy called um, Moon, he says that uh, for Israel, the cost of setting back Iran's nuclear program for a few years while they try to deal with Hezbollah and Syria is now at an all-time high. So I think this is a very, very dangerous, critical situation. I think this is what Castro is pointing to in his, uh, in his speech there to the Cuban parliament about an imminent nuclear war. I would take that very seriously. And I would also point to the fact that the U.S. media are engaged in a news blackout. Because I, I think you maybe you think about it now, and or keep when, as you go into the coming weeks or days, uh, the, the the triviality, the frivolity, the nothingness of the news reported in the U.S. when all of these threats are being exchanged in the world. Right, uh, Admiral Mullen says we're preparing uh, a plan to attack Iran, and Motaki, the Iranian uh, foreign minister, speaking from Moscow, says, you know, if you do, it'll be worse for you than Iraq or. Afghanistan, so don't do it, uh, and so forth. Um, this, I think, it shows that that uh, there's a, a concerted effort not to report the gravity of the situation to the American people. So I hope we've been able to tell that story. Uh, well, have the Israelis made any public comments about uh, their intentions with regard to uh, military actions? Well, there was, uh, just in the past week, there was this uh, rather serious uh, shooting incident along the Israeli-Lebanese border. And uh, in the course of this, an Israeli lieutenant colonel 
got killed by a Lebanese army sniper and an Israeli major was critically wounded. There were two dead uh, on the Lebanese army side and one journalist uh, there, I think from the Al-Manar television, um, which is the Hezbollah television network. Um, and again, this is the first time in four years that you've had such a serious uh, incident. Uh, it's, it's very likely that soon the United Nations will issue a report on the assassination of the Lebanese um, politician Hariri, former prime minister, who was blown up in, uh, in Beirut in 2005. And the uh, idea is that this is an orchestrated fake report, which is going to blame it on Hezbollah, and not examine, was it the U.S., was it the British, was it the Israelis, was it somebody else, but just pin it on Hezbollah. So I think this, uh, I read this uh, Lebanese border incident as something that Hezbollah wanted um, because because of the heavy Israeli losses among these two officers. I think it's it's likely that this was Hezbollah taking the lead, and they're essentially saying, lay off of us, uh, and we know that the Hariri report is coming. Who's who's going to put out the uh, report on the... the United Nations, and it's a very very um, smelly group of uh, of globalist officials o- over there, right? It's it's going to be comparable to to other things that we've had we've had in the past. I, I don't see how it would have been helping the the uh, the Hezbollah to to engage in this this assassination, whereas the other powers that I mentioned have a much better uh, reason to do it. However, the idea is that that the the arming of Hezbollah occurs with the help of uh, of Syria. I don't think there's much doubt about it. And the Israelis, well, there are two things from the Israelis. One is that when this shooting incident took place, the the, the shooting incident that I've just gone through came the day after some rockets were fired from Egyptian territory in the Sinai Peninsula against the Israeli town of Elat, and against the Jordanian town of Aqaba. Uh, you've seen it in Lawrence of Arabia, right? When he rides the camels into the into the back of the town, uh, the top of the uh, of the uh, the ocean. There, the the problem with this is that uh, th- these are probably uh, Hamas activists operating not from the Gaza Strip but from Egypt. So it's basically a, a, a two part incident. One is along the Hamas front, and another one is along the Hezbollah front. So the story was, according to the Wall Street Journal, the uh, Israeli government under Netanyahu was planning some kind of, a, of an air raid, uh, some kind of a retaliatory attack, presumably against Lebanon, right after this took place, but the U.S. convinced them not to do it. Uh, with whatever arguments, I don't know. However, there's a previously standing Israeli policy that if missiles are now fired from southern Lebanon against Israel, presumably by Hezbollah, that the Israelis will attack Syria. So that gives you two countries in three months. If it's um, an altercation between Israel and Lebanon, it's going to become Israel-Syria at the same time and very, very likely spread from there. So you're really on the verge of a of a regional war. It would, in effect, be the Lebanese National Army and Hezbollah and Syria and Iran lining up against, well, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Israel, the United States, the British, I'm not so sure, but likely to be involved at some level. 
and perhaps others. There's likely to be fighting in Yemen. Uh, Yemen is the area where a, an Iranian-backed uh, rebellion is being uh, fought by the government of Yemen, which is backed by Saudi Arabia. And you might have fighting also in Somalia and, uh, and elsewhere, depending on where these different factions uh, line up. Um, part, again, part of the, the reason for the war is that the U.S. is appalled by the new independence of Turkey. Turkey had been trying for years to get into the European Union. They've, they've given up because they've been rebuffed so many times. They remain as NATO members, but Turkey is now more interested in building a sphere of influence in the Middle East for itself uh, and in this, they they don't agree with Iran, but for the moment, I think they they disagree more with the U.S. than they disagree with uh, with Iran. And there's also now this growing idea that Mubarak in Egypt uh, is not eternal, and that there will be some change in the government there. What will it be? It's very interesting. You look at the Middle East. The, the countries that have a permanent uh, historical presence, right, that have been there for a long time, are essentially Turkey and Iran and Egypt, and both Turkey and Iran are trying to build themselves up now as regional hegemons, uh, will Egypt simply sit by and be content to be the friend of the U.S. and uh, lose all influence as Turkey and Iran make such uh, advances? I don't think they will. So I think this is all likely to, to escape from, uh, from U.S. control. Remember also then that Jordan and Saudi Arabia are essentially constructs, right? They're artificial entities that were put together by the British in the 1920s, 1930s, and really have operated under U.S. domination ever since. And uh, those little countries, right, the Kuwaits and Dubais and Abu Dhabis, are all simply British puppet states in the Persian Gulf, right? Kuwait was created under British um, suzerainty in, in uh, 1899 as a way of preventing the German Berlin to Baghdad railway from going on to the Gulf. And uh, so they had to block the back door, so to speak. So the Germans couldn't get into the, into the Gulf with their, with their railroad when it reached there. So it would then be a regional war. And again, back to Ria Novosti, that analysis is that there's a very close cooperation between Venezuela and Iran. And if uh, Iran is attacked, uh, there even might be some question of, uh, of a diminishing of the oil supply to the U.S. from Venezuela or maybe something more dramatic, uh, depending on what Colombia does. Colombia acting as the cat's paw of the U.S. against uh, Chavez and against Venezuela. So uh, some of these combinations are a little bit novel and therefore a little bit uncertain, but uh, things are changing uh, very rapidly, and um, therefore this, this has every potential to become a real conflagration, more so than, than it would have uh, maybe five or ten years ago. One of the things that's not nailed down in the middle of this is the government of Iraq, and I think that's one of the things that's holding it up. From the U.S. point of view, right, if you want to have a Sunni and Arab combination against Iranians, Persians, who are also Shiites, and their uh, immediate friends, you need Iraq as part of that. Right? That was once the main front where the Arabs and the, and the Iranians clashed right, for all those, those, those years of war. Even um, The U.S. Uh, desire would be to put in Alawi, the secular Shiite leading a coalition of Sunnis to, to a significant degree, to make him the puppet, and therefore you could have Iraq at least in some posture of uh, 
well, some kind of hostility, maybe not war against Iran, but some kind of um, uh, you know non benevolent neutrality. Whereas the uh, the Iranians would like to get uh, to get Maliki back in and uh, have him function as uh, essentially a uh, a Persian satrap. Uh, so that's really the fight. That's why Biden has gone to to Iraq so many times. Is that the U.S. would like to to make Iraq play some role in this new coalition, even though they've they of course destroyed the Iraqi army and really haven't succeeded in building it up again. It just shows how you know the needs of imperialism in 2002-2003 uh, are now undermining the goals of imperialism in 2010. Webster Tarpley, thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate it very much. Something happening here. Yeah, yeah. What it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there. I've been speaking with Webster Tarpley. Today's show has been How the Failed Attack on the Euro is Setting the Stage for a New Middle East War. Webster Tarpley is an economic historian, author, and lecturer. He is author of Against Oligarchy, 9-11 Synthetic Terror, Made in the USA, and co-author of George Bush, The Unauthorized Biography. His latest books are Obama, The Postmodern Coup, The Making of a Manchurian Candidate, and Obama, The Unauthorized Biography. His prescient economic work, Surviving the Cataclysm, A Study of the World Financial Crisis, is now out in paperback. Today we discussed his recent article, Obama is Preparing to Bomb Iran. Visit his website at www.tarpley.net. That's T-A-R-P-L-E-Y dot N-E-T. Email him at tarpley at tarpley.net. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaromako. To make comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Or call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.org. That's G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cipher and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look with this yourself for peace. Give thanks. Life and release, you dig me? 